Yeah. So when we start doing that, we need to take keep this in mind that some of the behavioral interventions would need to be recalibrated because they won't work as we planned. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I'm thrilled to have back with me Vera Sharapanova. Vera is a compliance professional practicing in really all of Europe. And I've had her on the pod a couple of times. She's a well-known commentator in the compliance community. And she recently wrote an article for the FCPA blog that I found extraordinarily interesting entitled, European Banks Are Behavioral Risks Pioneers, Period. No, really. It was really intriguing. I asked her if she would come on the pod and talk about it. And she graciously agreed to take some time. So Vera, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. The introduction was great, and I'm happy to be back. So maybe we could start with what interested you or what led you to write this article? All right. Well, that's a great opening question. It's not only you who found this topic and the article intriguing and interesting. I also found this topic very interesting when I first delved into that half a year ago. I would need to say that as a standard line of business, we don't have much to do with financial institutions as such, with banks or insurance companies. Studio Etica, the consultancy which I'm running, the ethics and compliance consultancy. Most of the time we work with real sector and with many industries like telecoms and defense and manufacturing, retail. But we rarely have engagements with banks. But last year, I did some webinars with people from banking here in Europe, specifically with people working in the UK, in the banking industry. This topic came up and I started to delve into that. And I started to look into that because I found it absolutely fascinating and quite innovative. And it turned out to be so. Both sides of the Atlantic, we've seen banks have a series of issues and challenges, really starting with a financial crisis back as far back as 08, 09, but moving forward through a series of different regulatory challenges that I think you and I have, have really chronicled in our various writings. So what do you really see or what have you seen as some of the behavioral risks in the banking sector? So the behavioral risk, what is the question was, is it like kind of a specific behavioral risk to financial industry? I would rather say that behavioral risk is more or less always the same. The thing which we care about in compliance is more or less the same everywhere in every company or every industry. The behavioral risk of the employees doing something which can lead to unwanted outcomes, to poor outcomes for the organization, for the employees themselves, for the customers, for the broader public, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is the main I guess, definition, the, the broad definition of what behavioral risk is. And of course, there are lots of subcategories under this broad definition. What kind of a wrong can happen? What kind of a wrong decision an employee can take depending on the circumstances, right? So what is specific to financial industry is the fact that these guys work with money. This makes their job riskier <laughs> because the outcomes can be more immediate and more clearly seen and more clearly felt 
by the customers, first of all. And I think there, there is a kind of a specific behavioral risk. But I do think that this behavioral risk can lead to more drastic outcomes if it materializes. In your article, you talked about the regulators. And in, in the United Kingdom, that's the Financial Conduct Authority. And you also talked about the Danish banking regulator. And I was interested to see the regulators actually focusing on this. So how do you see regulators driving this type of at least dialogue within corporations in the United States? The Department of Justice talks about culture, and that's related to behavioral risk, but it's a little bit different. So could you say a few words about the regulators' role in driving this discussion? This is really interesting. First of all, I think we need to highlight that, in general, the regulator, of course, has a very limited role in mandating culture, because no regulator can mandate what kind of a culture an organization needs to have. Well, I mean, the regulator can mandate that, but how different this culture is going to be in reality, that's no one can mandate that, right? No one can predict that, because culture is very, very dynamic, and it doesn't go by the rules cultures live through that. So still the regulators in the UK specifically and in the Netherlands played an absolutely critical facilitating and educational role because as they started the discussion and they started to talk about changes to the culture, that those changes are important. They started to develop assessment tools focused on culture. So having the culture at the center of the whole assessment of a bank. So they started making all of those important changes. They started organizing certain events and having behavioral scientists talk there. They started driving the interest and driving the understanding that the regulator themselves considering this topic critical and important. They also did some important things, like, for example, in the UK, there was a a banking, a banking Standards Board founded in 2015, caring specifically and focusing specifically on the standards, on the culture the UK banks have. This Standards Board is not a regulator, it's not a prosecutor, it's not an enforcement agency. This is just, you know, non-profit board. But still, this board also contributed to the promotion of the importance and also served as a reference, as a repository of reference materials, yeah, because they started to put down a lot of reference documents and toolkits on these banking standards, and they started to set certain expectations. They started to provide certain resources for the banks to look at when they were thinking about which culture they are having and which culture change they need to be having, etc., etc. All of that played a very important role, in my opinion. Before we started our podcast today, you told me something that really I found very surprising and indeed very interesting, which was the corporate function in these banks, which brought these behavioral scientists in. Could you talk a little bit about that? And I'm not sure there's an answer, but it's certainly an interesting point. Yeah, sure. That's really remarkable. But uh, really, the behavioral scientists running the behavioral units right now in the Dutch banks and in the UK banks here in Europe, to whom I have talked, most of them say that the whole thing started from, a chief, from their chief audit executive, that the chief audit executive came to the conclusion that many problems stem from behaviors. And that's why those chief audit executives 
came to the idea that they would need to have a behavioral unit inside of an internal audit team. And most of the behavioral units working banks right now and looking into behavioral risk sit inside of the internal audit function, which I find very, very interesting. And I do remember Ms. Chen saying at one of her webinars that the best programs she has seen during her employment with DOJ were run by internal auditors. <laughs> so I guess there are no coincidences here, right? Now, seriously, I don't know what to say. Is it good? Is it bad? But this is certainly interesting. I certainly agree with that. I'd now like to turn to part of your blog post where you talked about some of the practical steps the behavioral scientists were doing to help assess behavioral risk. And I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through those, because I think it really gives the compliance professional some pretty good ideas about how they might be able to start having this dialogue in their company as well. Yeah, before we turn to that, I need to make a certain disclaimer, because the challenge with applying behavioral science is the following. Behavioral interventions do not always work. And before you start applying some, having some behavioral science in your company, it is absolutely critical to have a common understanding that certain behavioral interventions won't work, right? And it's not easy because in our corporations, we are very much used to results-driven things. So we always want sales to grow, costs to fall, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we want the graphs and the numbers going down, the things which we want to have going up, the things which we don't want to have going down, et cetera, et cetera. And this is not so straightforward. So going back to your question, Tom, regarding the practical things, well, everything they do is very practical, first of all. The first thing that they do, they look into behavioral risk. So they assess on top of their risk management frameworks, they have a specific behavioral lens. So on top of normal risk management activities, they have a behavioral unit which observes. The method is called ethnography. That would, in simple terms, would be something like a fly on a wall most of the time. So they observe. The thing here is that they want to understand, this is called a bottom-up approach, because they want to understand what is really happening inside of certain teams they are currently looking at departments, locations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, vs. what leaders think what's happening and what's written in the policies that what should be happening. Okay, so they are trying to understand if these things are on the same level or the leaders are, are thinking, oh, we're just doing fine, everything is fine, we're so ethical, and you know, employees are doing great, we're doing great, etc. And then uh, you just go there to the team and get a very different opinion. And uh, this fly on the wall, uh, they try to understand very basic things. What's the air in the team? What's the weather? What are the heroes? Who is the hero of the team? The person who is breaking the rules to get the targets, to hit the targets? Or who? What is the perception of risk? What employees actually think? What is risk? What is risky? What is not risky? What is okay doing? What is not okay doing? What are the social norms of this team? What about the psychological safety within this team? And all of that, they kind of compare and triangulate and compare to what's written in the documents, the policies and regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And doing all that, they arrive at a certain heat map of the organization. 
And they go to the board and say, listen, here are the risk hotspots. We're not saying that there is a problem. However, this is red flag and we better do something about this. This is point number one. Point number two, what they do and what I find absolutely fascinating is that they they focus on subcultures. They don't do holistic culture assessment because, again, they concentrate on specific teams and even decision points, even decision points, because problems do not lie in the averages. Because culture can be very, very different in very in different parts of the company. Because more corporations are quite big, and we have a lot of people, and we have a lot of locations, and we have a lot of functions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the climate within every piece of this organization can be very, very different. It can feel a lot different to sit on the board and to work as a frontline employee, right? So that's why they take a very granular, a very specific and targeted approach, and they look at very specific things. They almost never use surveys, which is the method we are very much used to when we talk about culture assessments. They use surveys only to generalize some of their observations they already have and to triangulate the data that they already have and the conclusions they kind of are coming to because surveys are not truth and there are lots of limitations based on what behavioral sciences say, says. There are lots of limitations to that method, which is also a very interesting thing. And they do a lot of behavioral change interventions if they want to ha- to change something in a decision uh, process, if their subculture audit has revealed certain risk. And the heat map with behavioral risk says that this is the risk hotspot. So they have uh, special behavioral interventions, how they work to change what's not working in the best way, which is not bringing potentially the best outcome. And here they work with organizational networks. Here they change the choice infrastructure. Here they do nudging and sludging, (laughs) a lot of interesting things, which are all Again, very, very practical, but a small but, what I said at the beginning, not all behavioral interventions work. Yeah. So when we start doing that, we need to take, keep this in mind that some of the behavioral interventions would need to be recalibrated because they won't work as we planned. You mentioned Wei Chen and her remarks about having a chief audit executive or someone with that professional training as a chief compliance officer. I've heard her speak as well, and she's also talked about using behavioral scientists as a part of your compliance team. So I wanted to maybe use that as a lead-in to, do you think some of the strategies and tactics that you've seen banks use, that we might be able to move those to non-bank companies or you know non-financial institutions? Is this something that we can look at, study, and perhaps replicate in other industries as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's the main reason I was writing this article in the first place. By the way, 
I'm planning to write a little bit more about all of that, specifically about the things we, we just discussed, about looking into the behavioral risk and looking into subcultures, etc., etc. The goal which I'm pursuing here is absolutely educational and spreading the word and diffusing the information. I think we all in a compliance profession, regardless of the industry we are in, we need to have a better insight. We need to have more information about what these people are doing and the methods they are applying. Subculture audits, does it apply to any industry? Yes, of course, it does. It does. Looking into behavioral risk on top of a risk management framework, does it apply to any industry? Yes, it does. So, yeah, I would say absolutely. Of course, this is not going to be, you know, copy and paste because financial industry has its own specifics. They work with money. They are very, very technologically savvy and a lot more advanced. So they all have those cryptocurrencies and I don't know what. These days, many banks right now have voice surveillance and contact surveillance, et cetera, et cetera, very specific software tools, which other organizations don't have. But still, on a conceptual level, on a framework level, on a general approach level, there is a lot to learn. Well, that really sounds like not only something very interesting for you to study, but it's going to be something very interesting for the rest of us to consume from an educational perspective. So I'm greatly looking forward to your next article on this. Unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but before we go, I wanted to ask you is if anyone wants any more information on the topics we've talked about today, we're going to link to the FCPA blog, but if they wanted to, to get in contact with you, for instance, what might be the best way to do so? There is a very informative and insightful webinar channel, I don't know, YouTube, that's on YouTube, YouTube channel, okay, with the webinars done by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is called Banknotes. That's a series of webinars looking at changing banking culture to a more ethical culture from very different angles. So they talk about diversity and inclusion, so they talk about ethics, behavioral sciences, etc., etc. So they talk about the changes brought by the pandemic, by remote work, etc. what this has to say about the changes to the culture and how we're dealing with all of that psychological safety included, etc. So I find it absolutely fascinating. Also, yes, as I've already said, I'm planning to write a little bit more on this. If you want to read what I write, the best solution here is to follow me on LinkedIn because I'm already... I'm always having, posting everything there. So the best option would be just to make friends on LinkedIn. (laughs) Vera, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to uh, visit with me again. The the article on the FCPA blog, I think, generated a lot of attention and a lot of conversations. And so I look forward to perhaps you and I continuing this conversation as well. Gladly. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review. 